So uh, Chris and I have a new family tradition, as it were, something that we're trying to introduce to uh, the kids over the course. It's kind of a coming of age thing that we're doing. Well, not really coming of age. It's more of a coming of height, coming of size thing that we're doing in our house. See, what this is the deal. In our house, starting like last year, in our house, as soon as you are 48 inches high, that as soon as you have arrived and you've hit the four-foot mark, Krista and I take you to Canada's Wonderland. That's the, that's the deal. See, Krista and I are both amusement park people. We love a good roller coaster, a thrill ride, or whatever, and we want to instill these very important values in the lives of our children. And so when they hit 48 inches, which is to say, uh, when they reach that height that they can go on, not all, but on most of the rides that I would also find interesting so that we can go and I won't be totally bored the whole time. Once they reach that height, we take them to Canada's Wonderland to celebrate. And um, here's the, and the one rule is this. This is the thing. This is how it works. You have to, on your first visit to Canada's Wonderland, you have to ride every ride that you qualify for at least once. That's the deal. You got to try everything. It's kind of like eating everything on your plate. You got to try everything once, which was a great idea this year because we took our older two girls this year. It was a great idea. We did uh, Thunder Run, I think it's called. It, it's a, the train basically goes around the mountain in the middle. It's a bunch of circles and and the girls were all excited and energetic and they were like, they came off and the adrenaline was pumping and it was, we were super stoked and everything was going awesome until we decided that ride number two was going to be the bat. Now, uh, if you've never been to Canada's Wonderland or if you've never ridden on the bat, uh, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say this. By the time you are traveling more than 75 kilometers an hour backwards, upside down, that is an adult roller coaster right there. You have arrived at a big person roller coaster that we uh, basically forced our eight and seven-year-old girls to go on. Uh, it, it, listen, I never said that I'm the father of the year, Okay. Uh, everybody else says it, but I have never said it. So yeah, we, uh, we got into line and we basically had to talk the girls into it uh, repeatedly while we were waiting in line. But everything was fine and we all got loaded in and we buckled the thing down and everything was going great until we started to get pulled up the incline uh, that would launch us, you know, through the rest of the roller coaster and about halfway up, uh, my seven-year-old burst into tears and started saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do, I don't want to do this. And that's like a really bad moment uh, to make that decision because we kind of looked at her and said, I, I don't know how to break this to you, but you're doing this. This is uh, happening. And so we went through the whole ordeal and by the time the train pulled into the station uh she was basically hysterical and <laughs> unconsolable and weeping and shrieking and it was really quite an ugly uh scene my eight-year-old was sitting beside me and she was like literally hyperventilating I've never been <laughs> around a human being when they've actually been hyperventilating before and so she was crying and hyperventilating which uh, thankfully, she thought it was really funny that she was breathing so funny. And so she actually started laughing and crying and hyperventilating all at the same time. And it was just one of those moments where, you know, 
that if they had understood what was really involved, uh, they would have never signed up for this in the first place. And uh, we didn't make them go on it again, uh, but we did make them do the mind buster and they cried all over again. But and it doesn't matter because the point is that what we learned is that if my girls had known uh, what was all involved, they just would have never they would have never agreed to get involved in that in the first place. And I know, I only bring it up because of this, because I know you've had exactly the same situation in your life. You bought a house that you thought would be a neat renovation project. And if you had only known what you were getting into, you agreed to do a favor for a friend. You agreed to help a friend move. And if you'd only known ahead of time what you were getting, you thought that that guy looked cute, and you said yes when he asked, but if you had only known uh, what you were getting into, that's the thing, right? If, you, if we had understood on the front end what it was that we were getting into, sometimes I think we would just never agreed to do it in the first place. And the question that we're going to ask this morning is, what happens when that is true about faith? See, we're picking up the story that we've been going through in this whole All In series in Matthew chapter eight and Matthew chapter nine, a series of stories that are all about basically two things, right? We've said all the way along that the series is about two different things. This is on the one hand, this is a series about Jesus' power and authority to bring healing and hope and restoration into the brokenness, darkness, sickness, pain, chaos and death that exists all around us in our lives and all across our world. That Jesus is powerful to come into our world and bring healing to the disease and to bring peace in the anxiety, to bring order to the chaos, to bring calm to the storm, to bring miraculous reconciliation to the relationship, to bring deliverance from sin and addiction. Jesus has the power to come into our world and bring healing and hope and restoration. And we want to be the kind of community that prays, that pleads, that lives as though that's what Jesus has come to do because he has. And that's the one theme of the series, Jesus' power and authority to do that in our life. The other theme of the series is our response to Jesus' power and authority in our lives. That what Jesus has called us into is a life that responds to him in faith. The kind of faith that not only believes that he's able to bring healing and hope and restoration, but the kind of faith that's willing to trust him with all of our lives even in the midst of the storm, even if it looks like that storm is not going away anytime soon. Not just a faith that believes and a faith that trusts, but a faith that is faithful to love and serve him in a fully devoted kind of way that's committed to living a life of living like Jesus, of loving like Jesus. A life that's spent following him on his timing and his terms because followers of Jesus do what? Say it with me. Follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And those are the two themes that run all the way through this series. And they're the two themes that run through the story that we're looking at this morning. And we're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 8 verse 28 where it says this. When he, Jesus, arrived at the other side... So when he, Jesus, arrived at the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? This is a continuation or 
almost the conclusion of the story that we looked at last week that was started the week before about Jesus and his disciples getting into a boat. And we said last week that the story about Jesus and his disciples getting in the boat is a, is a story not just about Jesus' power and authority, but a story about what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is a story about discipleship. And this is the conclusion or near the conclusion of the, of the story of Jesus in the boat. When Jesus arrived at the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. And they were so violent that nobody could pass by that way. So Jesus and his disciples come out of the storm. He's just calmed the storm. They land the boat on the other side of the lake around the midpoint of the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they're getting out of the boat. They're disembarking. And they're walking down the main thoroughfare to the town of Gadara. It's about eight kilometers you know, inland. They're walking towards the town of Gadara on this main thoroughfare and they are accosted by two men that Matthew describes as being indwelt by or under the influence of or being oppressed by demonic evil forces in their life. Men whose lives were out of control because they were under the control of demonic forces, of dark powers, dark spirits in their life. Whatever the disciples had just experienced externally in the storm was exactly the same kind of thing that was raging internally in these guys' spirits. And Jesus says, or Matthew says, they had just come from the tombs. Now don't think Victoria Lawn in Pleasant View or whatever the cemetery is that's close to, you know, where you are. Um, this is like Tombs as in burial caves that had been cut out of the steep embankment that led down to the lake. It was a place that the Jews considered to be a literally God-forsaken space. You don't tread where the dead lay unless you need to. It's a <clears throat> excuse me, a place of ghosts and spirits and supernatural evil and demons. It's the perfect place for these men. To live, And Matthew says that these guys who lived in that space were exceedingly violent. That their habit of victimizing and terrorizing people who passed by that road had made it virtually impossible for anyone to get from the port to the town along this route. They had shut down the main thoroughfare from the port into the city. Shut it down. This last week. Uh, the Don Valley Parkway was closed in both directions while they investigated a uh, traffic incident there. If you've ever been in Toronto when like the Gardner's closed or the Don Valley, you know what kind of havoc that gets wreaked in the town when the main thoroughfare is closed. These guys were shutting down this town, throwing the town into confusion and chaos because their lives were controlled by the dark forces of demonic spirits. Now I know, I know, that in our community, there are some who are tempted to roll their eyes when we read about, when we talk about the power of demonic forces and demonic spirits uh, at work in people's lives. And I understand that. I understand that. I, I'm tempted sometimes myself to shy away from thinking or, or to even talking about uh, demonic forces. Sometimes I use language that sounds more like, you know, wrestling with our inner demons or that kind of soft pedals it because I get uncomfortable with it too because we live in a culture 
that worships at the altar of science and technology, right? There's not anything you've ever experienced that isn't science explainable through a perfectly reasonable scientific explanation and there's not a problem you've ever encountered that isn't easily solved by uh, technology, modern technology, uh, usually invented by Apple. <laughs> Says the guy who's preaching from his iPad. Ah, oh, Apple, the cause of and solution to most of life's problems. So we, we're trained, because we know, right? We used to think that lightning was the wrath of the gods being thrown down towards the earth. And now we know, right? It's just actually electrical discharge as the atmosphere tries to equalize an electrical imbalance contained with We know that. We used to think that demons and spirits were real, but now we know about things like mental illness and multiple personality disorder and psychotic episodes. And, and, and many people want to assume that that's just what this is, that this is just a tragically untreated and untreatable mental illness run amok in these guys' lives. And maybe that's what it is, maybe. But I just want to say, for those who struggle with this idea, that to me, there's no reason, no scientific reason why it ought to be impossible that that actually really was demonic oppression that was going on in those people's lives. It's not scientifically impossible that that was real. Because the truth is, and I, I'll say this, I'm a person of science. I have a degree, in a Bachelor of Applied Science in Electrical Engineering that I got from the University of Waterloo. I'm a person who's done some science in my lifetime. I'm a person of science. I enjoy science and technology. I do not want an Egyptian dentist from 5,000 years ago. Thank you very much. I'm very happy with modern medical technology. But the truth of the matter is that science doesn't explain everything. Science can't explain everything. Right? Like, I'll give you an example. Science can't explain love. It can't. Science cannot explain. You can't measure love on a meter, on an instrument. You can't, I mean, people come up with, they do psychology about love and evolutionary biology surrounding love, whatever. But science can't measure and explain love. And you know that it's true because you've seen this kind of couple, right? Where the one person has clearly married out of their league, right? And as one such person who believes that I have significantly married up and out of my league, I thank God for the grace that sometimes this happens. But you've seen, you know the couple, you know that, that, okay, Jesus says thou shalt not judge, right? But when they come walking down the sidewalk towards you, you're like, sorry, Lord, but there is no way that that person should end up with them. Science can't explain that, right? It's, there's just some things that fall outside of the realm of the explanatory power of science. Science cannot investigate God. This is my point. Science cannot investigate the supernatural. It lies beyond the scientific method to investigate the supernatural, which means that science can never render a verdict on the supernatural. It's outside of science's purview to do that. So the next time somebody says to you that basically science has disproved God, all they're really saying is they personally don't believe in God. Because science can't disprove God. It's not scientifically impossible that this was actually demonic oppression. The second thing I'd say is that it's not philosophically unreasonable, especially for people like us. We, we gather together in this environment. Why? Because even the most skeptical among us is intrigued by the possibility of the divine, that there just might be an invisible cosmic persona that has the power to influence our world for good. Well, a belief in the demonic is cut out of exactly the same cloth. This, this is what occurred to me one day. I was hesitant to talk about the demonic, and I realized that if I'm prepared to believe in an invisible cosmic persona that, can influence, that has the power to influence the world for good, then why can't I believe in an invisible cosmic persona that has the power to influence the world for evil? Right? It's the other thing is that it's experientially knowable. If we go outside 
of the westernized context, societies that have been trained to disbelieve in the supernatural because we've been trained to believe in science. What you discover is a whole world out there of people who are more open to the supernatural than we are and who experience phenomena that are not explainable by modern science. I believe that this really was a form of supernatural demonic oppression in these guys' lives. And as Jesus gets out of the boat and he's walking down the main thoroughfare, it says in verse 29 that they accosted him saying this, what do you want from us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? What do you want with us? So here's the interesting thing, right? These guys control this road. Whenever somebody gets out of a boat and try to walk down the road, they come out and they threaten and they terrorize and they victimize and they assault and they attack and they drive people away and the road becomes virtually impossible to pass because of these guys' threatening presence, right? Except when Jesus gets out of the boat. You see, when Jesus gets out of the boat, the whole thing gets turned on its head. And all of a sudden, instead of threatening Jesus, they feel threatened by Jesus. Instead of victimizing and terrorizing Jesus, they are afraid, they're terrified that they're gonna be victimized by Jesus. They recognize in Jesus the power and authority of God resting on him to defeat them. Right, they even, they imply it when they say, you know, what do you want with us? That, that uh, question, by the way, in the Greek is just, what, what, what is there between you and me? What do we have in common? What are you doing? You, you've got no trouble with us, Jesus. You get no business with us here. It's kind of the, the, the question that a petty thief or a drug dealer asks when a police officer walks around the corner. Hey, whoa, hey, hey, I don't, I don't want any trouble, man. We got no business together. We got no business, man. You got no concern, no need to, no way, man. These guys are freaking out and they're saying, what, what, do you, what do you want to do with us? And then they call him the son of God. It's interesting, son of God. Up to this point in the story, the only other being that is referred to Jesus as the son of God is the devil, the son of God. And the title, by the way, it doesn't refer to Jesus' divinity, that he is God living as a human being on earth in human history. That sort of connotation comes later. The title son of God is a kingly title. In the ancient world, the kings were the sons of God. They were the ones who were God's representatives on earth, endowed with God's power and authority, anointed by God, which is what the word Messiah means, in order to make God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what a king was. It was the son of God with God's power and authority to implement God's will on earth. And for Jesus, for the Jews, that meant implementing God's kingdom, which was a kingdom of love and peace and justice and joy and beauty and life and hope and equality for all um, on earth as it is in heaven. And the, the demons recognize that Jesus coming out of the boat, they see Jesus and they recognize that this is the one who is God's king come to earth to bring the kingdom at the appointed time. That's the phrase they use, at the appointed time. They knew the day was coming when God's kingdom was gonna fully and finally arrive on earth and God was gonna destroy evil and root evil out of his creatures and out of his creation. It was gonna restore the world to the way that the world was always supposed to be. And they knew that this was not the appointed time. They look up and see Jesus coming and they're like, oh man, the, he's early. 
And they're like freaking out, what are you doing? It's not time, we still got time because they know the kingdom isn't about to come. But what they know is that wherever Jesus is, the kingdom of God is breaking into the darkness and brokenness and sickness and pain and chaos and death of the world. They know that wherever Jesus is, the kingdom of God is coming and they're doomed. And they're doomed. And so they say to Jesus, (laughs) it says in verse 30, it says some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus, if if you drive us out, which is their way of saying, since you're gonna drive us out, would you please send us into the herd of pigs? And he said to them, Jesus' only word in the whole story, he said to them, go. Remember the centurion said, you just have to speak a word, stuff happens. Jesus says, go, and they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. And I know some people who think that story is hogwash. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. That was just, it was, talk about deviled ham though, right? Like, <laughs> Sorry, my wife, I'm so thankful that she's not here right now because she, not a fan of the pun. So we'll just, I'm just gonna leave it there. But Jesus, people have asked, why do the pigs rush into the water? And it's hard to know, but at the very least, at the very least, sure makes it obvious that Jesus got the demons out of the guys, didn't it? That Jesus wins in the end. That Jesus has the power by the word of his mouth and the authority to speak and to root the control, to to rescue your life and our world from the grip of evil. From evil as it has its grip on you. Whether you're experiencing some of the inner turmoil and chaos like these demonized men, or whether it's evil in you, which in just the personal form, in the ways in which you make choices, unloving, non-loving, anti-loving choices to do something other than love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That's what Jesus has called us to do. And we usually choose to love ourselves rather than loving God or each other, and that's called sin. And Jesus has the power to root that right out of our lives, to root... um, to root circumstantial evil out of our lives and out of our world. All the darkness and sickness and brokenness and pain and chaos and death. Just root it out, to root out systemic evil. The evil of of economic systems that oppress the poor and and grow the gap between the rich and the poor that perpetuate extreme poverty. Uh, governmental evil that rob people of the freedom and dignity of being a a human being, of of corporate evil and predatory market practices, of of, um, the evil of abusive organizations and relationship, the evil of ideologies, all the isms, the racism and the ageism and the sexism and the radicalism and the religious fundamentalism of all religions that is just, that is responsible for pain and brokenness in our world. Jesus has the power with the word of his mouth to free us from the grip of evil. (laughs) Which is not what the townspeople were expecting. I mean, that's the good news that Jesus came into the world with the power and authority of God to bring healing and hope and restoration to the brokenness 
of our world to remake this place so that it is populated with a species of people who love God with all they are and have, loving each other as much as they love themselves and who love the whole planet. That's the good news. The thing is the townspeople didn't really think of it as good news. I mean, you think about all the things that Jesus has done for these people, right? He's rescued their town from the grip of these demoniacs who had stifled all visitor traffic from the port, whether it was tourism or visiting family or economic purposes or whatever. These guys are holding this town in the grip of chaos. But it's not just the town, it's the families. It's the parents who fear for the safety of their children because of these men. It's families who lie in bed at night and hear their shrieking and wailing in the night air and wonder what these guys are up to. And Jesus steps in and with the word of his mouth, he rescues them from all of it. And how do they respond? How do they respond to Jesus? It says this, In verse 33, it says, those tending the pigs ran off and went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave the region. The townspeople hear from the pig herders what had happened, how Jesus had brought healing and hope to these demonized men and they come rushing out to Jesus and they ask him, they beg him to go away. It's obvious that Matthew is not very impressed. Obvious in the Greek, that is, that Matthew isn't very impressed with these town folks because he uses some of the same words that he used to describe the demoniacs to describe the townspeople. The the demon-influenced men Meet Jesus when he comes up the road. The townspeople come streaming out of the town to meet Jesus, same word. The demons beg Jesus to allow them to go into the pigs. The townspeople beg Jesus to leave their region, same word. It's almost as if Matthew is saying that their response to Jesus was just as evil. It was as symptomatic of the evil that was at work and had a grip on their lives as the evil that had a grip on the demoniac's lives. That if you see the power and authority of Jesus bringing healing, hope, and restoration into the world and you turn your back and you, you want nothing to do with it and you want Jesus to go away, that is, the, that is symptomatic of the hold that evil has on your life. They ask Jesus to go away. And why do they ask Jesus to go away? Why? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. So I'll give you my theory. <laughs> and there are others that share this theory. So I'm, I'm inviting you into my heresy. This is, here's why I believe the townspeople asked Jesus to leave. They asked Jesus to leave because he destroyed their pigs. Like, think about it for a second, okay? Think about it. In Israel in the first century, pig farming is potentially quite a lucrative little niche business for your town to run. Right? Like, think about it. On the supply side, supply of pigs is low because Jews think pigs are unclean. They don't farm pigs. No Jewish farmer is raising pigs. There aren't that many people raising pigs in Israel. So on the supply side, it's low. On the demand side, though it's not as high as it could be because Jews don't eat pigs because they're not kosher, on the demand side, it's still quite high because there are literally tens of thousands of Roman soldiers occupying Palestine at that time and all of them had an insatiable appetite for pork. You are part of town that raised pigs. The reason you were raising them was to sell them to the Roman government to use to feed their troops, and I promise you that was not unlucrative as a business. 
And when those pigs ran down the hill and jumped over the cliff and fell into the water, it was their economy that was taking a nosedive. It was their GDP going over the cliff. These pigs get destroyed. And this town is in a full-on economic crisis. They are in a full-on financial meltdown. And they're so furious at Jesus that healing the demoniacs had destroyed the pigs that they demand that he leaves. So Jesus has exposed their true values, their real priorities, right? And what was true of the folks in this town is that they valued their own prosperity ahead of these demoniacs' sanity. That's what the story tells us. That the people in this town cared about their pigs more than they cared about people. That the people in this town wanted their swine more than they wanted a savior. Jesus comes offering healing and hope and restoration. Jesus comes offering them prosperity and they said, no thanks, we'll keep our pigs. Jesus comes offering them the freedom that comes with a life of faith. And they said, no, thanks. We'd rather have the freedom that comes from financial security, even if it means we have to live in fear. They asked Jesus to leave because Jesus, in the process of bringing healing and hope and restoration to these men, had upset their comfortable middle-class lifestyle. And that was not a trade they were prepared to make. If they knew, as they understood, that that's what it was going to cost to allow Jesus to bring healing and hope into their lives, they decided it was not worth the price. And I mention it, I bring it up only to say this, that every single person at all three of our locations, including the one who's standing on the stage right now, has a herd of pigs. You have a herd of pigs. And I have a herd of pigs. Sometimes when I eat my four little girls, I, we eat with my four little girls, I'm absolutely convinced that I have a herd of pigs. But, but you have a herd of pigs and I have a herd of pigs. You have something in your life that you think you can't live without. Something in your life that you think you've earned, that you think you deserve, that you think you have the right to, to enjoy. Something that you won't live without. Something that you believe holds the secret to a happy, fulfilling life. You have a herd of pigs. And that herd of pigs is the thing that gets in your way of allowing Jesus to exercise healing and hope and restoration in your life. That's the thing that Jesus has to remove from your life if you're going to experience his power and authority bringing healing to you. If you're going to experience the freedom that comes from a life of faith, Jesus has to get rid of that thing because that's what's getting in the way. For some of you, you know, we come here week after week. We gather here. We gather in life groups. We gather with friends. And it says, Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Jesus is there, present with power and authority, waiting to bring healing and hope into our lives. We show up into this place and Jesus comes and he offers us the freedom that comes from a life lived in relationship with him. And we decide that we'd rather have our sin rather than living in submission to him. 
We'd rather have uh, our lifestyle, the choices we've come to rather enjoy than living a life of obedience. And we miss out on the healing and the hope because we prefer our pigs. Jesus comes and he offers the forgiveness that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. But like Jesus explains that if you want to be a forgiven person, you have to be a forgiving person. And we decide that we'd rather hang on to the anger and the bitterness and the hate then forgive the person who's hurt us and we take a pass on the forgiveness of Christ because we'd rather hang on to our bitterness. Jesus comes saying, I can miraculously reconcile that broken relationship in your life, that marriage, that relationship with a family member, that friendship that has absolutely imploded. I can miraculously reconcile those things, but we would rather hang on to our self-righteous pride that prefers to blame the other person for everything that's gone wrong rather than in humility say, you know what? I was probably a part of the problem and I'm willing to do the hard work to become a part of the solution. We would rather hang on to our pride and experience the healing that comes from humility. Jesus invites us into a life that just relishes in the freedom of simplicity and generosity where we take the stuff that God has blessed us with and we use it to become a blessing to others. We change our definition of enough so that everybody can have enough. And Jesus says, this is where freedom is to be found. And we say, no, thank you. I'd rather hang on to my middle-class comfort and luxury and ease. When we make that choice, we lose out on the opportunity to experience the healing and the hope and the restoration that Jesus comes to give. It's exactly what the townspeople did. They said, no, thank you, Jesus. Would you please leave? And you know what Jesus did? He left. And they experienced none of his healing and his hope and his forgiveness and his reconciliation and his restoration. They experienced none of his power and authority in their lives because they preferred their pigs to people. They preferred their swine to a savior. And Matthew, I think, is begging with us to not make the same mistake that the townspeople made. To allow Jesus to jumble with our priorities, to get out of bed in the morning because we want a savior more than we want our swine. To live a life that loves God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, with all that we are and all that we have as our single highest priority in life. Somebody once said, it's only in the 21st century that we pluralize the word priority. There is only one. That we would choose to love God with all that we are and all that we have is our only priority in life. That we would get out of bed in the morning caring more about people than we care about pigs. That we would get out of bed to love other people as much as we love ourselves. That we would get out of bed to give to others everything that we wish somebody would give to us because we care about them more than we care about our lives. Because Matthew I think implies that to the degree that we are willing to allow Jesus to jumble our priorities and we choose him ahead of our stuff, whatever that stuff is, that's the degree to which we open the door for him to exercise his power and authority in our lives and bring healing and hope and restoration into the brokenness, darkness, sickness, pain, chaos, and death that swirls around us all the time. If we'll only care about our Savior more than we care about our swine and people more than we care about pigs. And I want to pray for you this morning that that's exactly what Jesus 
would do in our lives. Close your eyes and let me pray for me and for you and for us. Father, there are people here this morning who know exactly what that thing is that they care about more than you. They know exactly what that thing is that they know that they believe they can't live without. They know exactly that thing that if it were taken from them or if they would never get to experience it, they would genuinely believe that life is not worth living. For those that don't know Jesus, would you please make it clear? Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, I don't know what that thing is. I don't want there to be anything. God, would you search our hearts? Would you know our minds? Would you show us if there's any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting? God, would you, would you expose in crystal clarity, God, the truth about where you sit on our priority list? Maybe you're here this morning and you know what that thing is and you can visualize it in your head. You can name it in your spirit. Open your hands Open your hands right now. Open your hands before God and say, God, I am letting go of this thing. I love you more than I love this. I love those around me. I love our world more than I love the opportunity to hang on to this stuff. Would you set me free to experience your healing and your hope and your restoration to know your power and authority? Rescue me from myself. God, would you set us free from our own lives and from our own stuff and from our own selves to live a life of faith and to find the freedom that there is in following you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.